Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 5th through Saturday the 7th feature guest conductor Herbert Blomstedt and pianist Bertrand Chamoyon. The program includes Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 23 and, after intermission, Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 2. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 23 in A Major, a work lasting about 26 minutes. From 1782, the year after he moved to Vienna, until 1786, Mozart wrote 15 piano concertos. That's an incredible outpouring of important music, and it corresponds precisely to Mozart's heyday as a performer. These concertos were his main performing vehicles, as well as his primary source of income, and time has placed them among the crowning glories of all music. There's little else in all Mozart's output aside from the great operas to compare with the magnificence, subtlety, and consistent brilliance of these scores, and in no other works did Mozart so ingeniously merge the symphonic, operatic, and chamber music styles into a uniquely personal language of expression. In the winter of 1785-86, Mozart wrote three piano concertos while he also worked on The Marriage of Figaro. This was the most productive period of his life, and the only reasonable way to explain the enormous and varied output of these six months is to assume that the intense work on the complicated musical and dramatic structures of Figaro set his mind racing with more ideas than a single four-act opera could contain. It's been suggested that the purely mechanical task of writing it all down would produce only six full pages per day. Neither that challenge nor the infinitely greater one of conceiving so much glorious music appears to have inconvenienced Mozart in the least. Throughout the winter, he kept to his regular routine of teaching and performing while also maintaining a full social calendar. The only activity that seems to have suffered was his correspondence, so we have only a sketchy account of his daily life at the time. Mozart entered the A major piano concerto, careful listing 488, in his catalog on March 2, 1786, only a month after the one-act comic opera The Impresario, just three weeks before the famous C minor concerto, the catalog 491, and less than two months before The Marriage of Figaro. Although it's not documented, Mozart probably performed the A major concerto at one of the Vienna Lenten concerts a few days after finishing it. This and the other two concertos of the Figaro winter are the first in Mozart's output to call for clarinets. Sketches show that Mozart started writing this A major concerto as early as 1784 with oboes instead. Mozart begins as if he were following the conventional recipe for a classical concerto, which is totally unlike him. But then, after a few pages, he proceeds to ignore nearly every subsequent instruction. The result is the kind of risky, though not reckless, creation known only to the greatest chefs and composers. The tone of the entire movement is generous and warmly lyrical, although, as in the duet in the same key between the Count and Susanna in Act Three of Figaro, there's still room for mischief, doubt, and the thrill of imminent danger. Mozart marks the slow movement adagio instead of the more common andante. What he has to say cannot be rushed. 
This magnificent and justly famous music stands alone among all Mozart concerto movements, not only because of its tempo or key, it's his only work in F-sharp minor, but also because it unlocks a tragic power that won't surface again in music until Beethoven. The wind writing is particularly expressive, and the piano solo is as simple and haunting as any slow aria. Even in Figaro, with its celebrated mixture of laughter and tears, there's scarcely a moment that plunges so deeply into the heart. The finale, a buoyant and delightful rondo, brings us back to A major, and after the adagio's revelations, it sounds like the happiest key on earth. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23, the catalog number 488. And now on to Johannes Brahms' Symphony Number no. 2 in D Major, a work lasting about 46 minutes. Within months after the long-awaited premiere of his first symphony, Brahms produced another one. The two were as different as night and day, logically enough, since the first had taken two decades of struggle and soul-searching, and the second was written over a summer holiday. If it truly was Beethoven's symphonic achievement that stood in Brahms' way for all those years, nothing seems to have stopped the flow of this new symphony in D major. Brahms had put his fears and worries behind him. This music was composed at the picture-postcard village of Porchach on the Vortesee, where Brahms had rented two tiny rooms for his summer holiday and where he would write his violin concerto the next summer. The rooms apparently were ideal for composition, even though the hallway was so narrow that Brahms' piano couldn't be moved up the stairs. It is delightful here, Brahms wrote to Fritz Shemrock, his publisher, soon after arriving, and the new symphony bears witness to his apparent delight. Later that summer, when Brahms' friend Theodor Bilroth, an amateur musician, played through the score for the first time, he wrote to the composer at once, It is all rippling streams, blue sky, sunshine, and cool green shadows. How beautiful it must be at Portschach. Eventually, listeners began to call this Brahms' pastoral symphony, again raising the comparison with Beethoven's. But if Brahms' second symphony has a true companion, it is the work that precedes it on this week's program, the violin concerto he would write the following summer in Portschach, cut from the same D major cloth and reflecting the mood and even some of the thematic material of the symphony. When Brahms sent the first movement of his new symphony off to Clara Schumann, she predicted that this music would fare better with the public than the tough and stormy first, and she was right. The first performance on December 30, 1877 in Vienna under Hans Richter was a triumph, and the third movement had to be repeated. When Brahms conducted the second performance in Leipzig just after the beginning of the new year, the audience was again enthusiastic. But Brahms' real moment of glory came late in the summer of 1878 when his new symphony was a great success in his native Hamburg, where he had twice failed to win a coveted musical post. Still, it would be another decade before the honorary freedom of Hamburg, the city's highest honor, was given to him, and Brahms remained ambivalent about his birthplace for the rest of his life. In the meantime, the D major symphony found receptive listeners nearly everywhere it was played. Theodore Thomas, who would later found the Chicago Symphony, introduced the work to the United States on October 3, 1878, at a concert in New York City. 
From the opening bars of the Allegro Non Troppo with their bucolic horn calls and woodwind chords, we prepare for the radiant sunlight and pure skies that Billroth promised. And with one soaring phrase from the first violins, Brahms' great pastoral scene unfolds before us. Although another of Bilroth's letters to the composer suggests that a happy, cheerful mood permeates the whole work, Brahms knew that even a sunny day contains moments of darkness and doubt, moments when pastoral serenity threatens to turn tragic. It's that underlying tension, even drama, that gives this music its remarkable character. A few details stand out, two particularly bracing passages for the three trombones in the development section, and much later, just before the coda, a wavering horn call that emerges serene and magical. This is followed, as if it were the most logical thing in the world, by a jolly bit of dancehall waltzing, just before the music flickers and dies. Edward Hanslick, one of Brahms' champions, thought the adagio more conspicuous for the development of the themes than for the worth of the themes themselves. Hanslick wasn't the first critic to be wrong. This movement has very little to do with development as we know it, although it's unlike him to be so far off the mark when dealing with music by Brahms. Hanslick did notice that the third movement has the relaxed character of a serenade. It is, for all its initial grace and charm, a serenade of some complexity, with two frolicsome presto passages smartly disguising the main theme and a wealth of shifting accents. The finale is jubilant and electrifying. The clouds seem to disappear after the hushed opening bars, and the music blazes forward almost unchecked to the very end. For all of Brahms' concerns about measuring up to Beethoven, he seldom mentioned his admiration for Haydn and his ineffable high spirits, but that's who Brahms most resembles here. There is, of course, the great orchestral roar of triumph that always suggests Beethoven, but many moments are pure Brahms, like the ecstatic clarinet solo that rises above the bustle only minutes into the movement, or the warm and striding theme in the strings that immediately follows. The extraordinary brilliance of the final bars, as unbridled an outburst as any in Brahms, was not lost on his great admirer, Antonin Vorjak, when he wrote his Carnival Overture. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 2. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.